Welcome to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. I am your host, Shadi Nabhan, and I am the chairman of the Precision Oncology Alliance at Keras Life Sciences. I'm a medical oncologist and a hematologist, and I host this show focusing on precision oncology and how the concept of precision oncology and precision medicine would hopefully lead to improvement in the diagnostic accuracy of disease and ultimately to improving the outcomes of patients with cancer. Today's podcast is with Dr. Olga Weinberg, who is a hematopathologist with interest in pediatric oncology. We are going to talk about pediatric cancers and pediatric precision oncology. Does precision oncology apply to pediatric cancers? What are the types of pediatric cancers that unfortunately kids will have and how can we really help by applying precision medicine and sequencing to the pediatric tumors? So I think it's, you know, we a lot of times we talk about adult cancers and adult tumors, but it's really critical and important to also step back and look at pediatric oncology and the applicability of NGS and sequencing to pediatric tumors because ultimately this might help in providing more precise therapy that hopefully will help all children that are diagnosed with cancer. And without further ado, Dr. Olga Weinberg on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. So it's really my pleasure to host today Dr. Olga Weinberg on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast to talk about precision oncology and pediatrics, that sweet spot of how precision oncology actually fits in taking care of pediatric patients. So Olga, welcome to the show. I appreciate you taking time of your busy schedule to be with us on the Keras Molecular Minute. For folks who, who don't know you and who are hearing about you or listening to you the first, for the first time, maybe a little bit about you, um, who you are, where you practice, and tell us a little bit about you know, your professional career because you're a hematopathologist and some folks may not really be familiar with that field. So get us started. Sure. Well, thank you for having me on. And so I am a hematopathologist, which means that I am a physician. I did my training at a medical school at Vanderbilt in Tennessee. And um, I, during medical school, I became interested in pathology. It, it appealed to me because it's really a field where um, we make a diagnosis upon which our clinical colleagues will um, give therapy. So I always felt that it was very central in clinical care. And even though we don't directly see patients, we very much influence patient care. So after my medical school training, I did my residency in anatomic pathology at Stanford. And then I subspecialized in hematopathology, which um, is a study of peripheral blood and bone marrows and looking at tissues and um, giving both benign and malignant diagnoses. So hematopathology essentially is you're, you're examining the bone marrow of patients or the lymph nodes of patients or the blood of patients to diagnose blood cancers essentially and non-blood cancers kind of thing? Yes, exactly. So if a patient presents with an enlarged lymph node, 
we may be asked to just look at a biopsy or an excised lymph node entirely and to use ancillary techniques to arrive at a diagnosis. Yeah, and as, as, as someone who obviously has done a lot of work in lymphoma myself, I attest to the importance of pathologists and absolutely, I couldn't agree more, integral part of the clinical care of patients. Uh, Olga, I know you're also interested in pediatrics specifically. Is this additional training after hematopathology in pediatrics? Is this part of the training? How does this actually fall into the training? So pathology has really evolved uh, in the last few decades, I would say. It used to be that one pathologist would do all kinds of pathology, adult, pediatrics, but now things are very specialized and there is a pediatric pathology fellowship. Although those are the pathologists that look at non-heme type specimens. So um, they would be the ones to diagnose sort of solid malignancies. But pediatric hematopathology, as you can imagine, is a very small subset of pathology. And so I actually did not train in pediatrics, but I did have a chance to join Boston Children's Hospital after my training where I practiced pediatric hematopathology and as well as adult hematopathology at the sister kind of hospital in Brigham and Women's. And you just recently moved, right? You are right now in the big state of Texas. <laughs> That's right. So for um, family reasons, due to my husband's job relocation, and I decided to take a job in Dallas at UT Southwestern, where I'll continue practicing hematopathology. And so UT Southwestern includes both a pediatric hospital as well as a couple of adult hospitals. So I'll continue using my skills in that setting. We're really looking forward to working with you, with UT Southwestern being part of the Precision Oncology Alliance. I, I think we look forward to working with, with you uh, in that capacity as well. When it comes to the types of cancers that pediatric patients suffer from, how different are they from the adult cancers, I guess? I mean, how many, I don't know, can you, can you draw the field for us in terms of the number of cancers that pediatrics have annually? Or I mean, how prevalent is cancer, I guess, in kids? So cancer, I would say in general, is less prevalent in a pediatric population, and it definitely has a very different distribution. So for example, pediatric acute leukemia comprises a quarter of all pediatric cancers. And when you think about adult acute leukemia, it has overall, at least lipoblastic leukemia, has a much better prognosis. So that, you know, over 97% of kids with ALL are cured with therapy as compared to adult with ALL who are, have a much more dismal prognosis. There's in the range, for example, of acute leukemias is more narrow in kids. And it's really because, you know, a lot of the adult cancers are due to acquisitions of multiple mutations, which versus a lot of pediatric cancers are more driven of either germline predisposition syndromes or just more simple mutations that occur at the genetic level. And so, um, you know, some of the disorders, for example, we see such as follicular lymphoma in adults all, all the time or CLL, we really don't see in kids at all. I mean, I think the type of cancers are different as well as mm -hmm. the percentage of cure for some cancers that occur in both adult and pediatrics also differ. So you mentioned acute lymphoblastic leukemia, which the chances of curing kids are very different than the chance of curing adults. How, I mean, when, when you look at the pediatric tumors in general, um, do we have good understanding of 
you alluded to this a little bit earlier, but of the mutation and the drivers and the, I would say the pathobiology of disease in pediatrics, in pediatric tumors, is that a well understood phenomenon? Well, I would say, I would say it's well understood. I would say, you know, with the rise of uh, NGS type of panels in the last decade or so, a lot more is known about the genetic findings that we see in um, pediatric neoplasms. But I would say precision medicine and basing therapy based on specific findings is still has a long way to go. It's a very exciting time and that, you know, a lot of tumors that are higher grade tumors a lot of these kids will be put on trials where, you know, they might, uh, you know, labs can find additional mutations that could perhaps be targeted. So there's a lot of strides that have been made and will continue to be made in this field. So probably the amount of progress in pediatrics has been much greater than what's been done in adult, for example, acute leukemia. In adult tumors, at least, sequencing the tumors to try to identify targetable mutations or to drive more precise therapy is obviously gaining steam and it's happening more frequently than I would say several years ago. I mean, technology is changing and therapeutic landscape is also changing. How is that happening in, in the pediatric world in terms of sequencing tumors and NGS and so forth? How frequent does this happen? Is, does this apply to all tumors? I mean, take us through the I guess, precision oncology and precision sequencing in the pediatric world? I would say it's really, if you look at just, for example, the sheer number of molecular labs, almost every large pediatric institution now has their own molecular lab. And that really, you know, highlights the fact of how central molecular testing has been versus in the past, a diagnosis would be made, for example, rhabdomyosarcoma, and patient would be placed on a therapy, and they're made, and usually there wouldn't be any additional studies that would be done. Sometimes cytogenetics might have been sent, or fish was sent. Cytogenetic often fails in these tumors, and fish might be more helpful. But um, we've really come a long way since then in that most samples will be sent for molecular studies, either up front or there's been a lot of large trials where these studies will be added when a patient relapses. The challenging part about pediatric world is that the therapies and kind of the new trials of therapies is more limited, right? Since, you know, if we think about adults, adults can go on trials all the time, but with pediatrics, there's a lot more hurdles that have to be met in that, you know, you have to prove that this really has a greater benefit than and how the new therapies would improve outcome as compared to the old therapies. And all of those standards are higher in pediatrics, right? Because, you know, these are kids. And so, although, you know, if they're facing malignancies that are, you know, high grade, then you can imagine the need for these therapies. But back to the, the molecular findings, um, we've really gone a long way. And for example, if you think about acute leukemia or acute pediatric leukemia, you know, we really only used to look for translocations, the typical translocations like ATV and RUNCS1. Now with the whole Philadelphia-like ALL and specific therapies that, that can um, for, account for, for those findings um, has really allowed patients to be stratified to a greater extent than they were before, which really tailors their therapy. So, for example, if you have a patient with acute leukemia who ends up having Philadelphia-like ALL, they'll receive greater amount of therapy than if you just had a standard risk ALL patient. 
So I think um, that's really showing precision medicine and how um, we can target therapy specifically for each patient who might have a greater risk. Now you mentioned, I mean, so, so in the pediatric world, uh, you're seeing that sequencing is occurring earlier in first-line treatment, even in non-metastatic disease. Like, I mean, I think in, in the, uh, compared to the adult world, in the adult world, we see patients with metastatic disease, advanced disease, right. being sequenced more often, even in the first-line or relaxed uh, line. Is that in pediatrics as well, or are you seeing more earlier in the course of therapy in pediatrics? I think we're seeing it more earlier just because both the patients are demanding it as well as the clinicians want to be able to offer different therapies to their patients. So for ALL, for example, all of these studies will be performed up front. And this isn't just true for COG studies. This is true for DFCI studies or any um, additional large groups that are uh, treating these patients. So um, once a patient is diagnosed, there will be multiple tubes that are drawn and these studies will be performed up front. Now, it may be that that test may not reveal a mutation that's known to be targetable, So, but that information is at least present and there for, for cases where a patient may relapse or, or receive additional therapy later. And, and you mentioned a lot about the leukemia. From a solid tumor perspective, what are the mm-hmm. ones that we in the pediatrics from a solid tumor, the non-hematologic ones that... Uh, I know of the retinoblastoma, I guess. And, and yeah. what, what else should we think about with solid tumors in kids? Retinoblastoma, rhabdomyosarcoma. Um, there's a lot of um, brain tumors, too, um, that are, you know, and, and the WHO classification of brain tumors really incorporates molecular findings as well. So those tumors are getting molecular studies done up front not only for just therapy, but also for um, classification, which, you know, of course, therapy is based on classification. So that all kind of ties together. You said that there's a lot of uh, demand for, to have the pediatric tumors sequenced. Do you see that coming, if you know, from like families demanding this or really physicians really driving this, like, or, or is it like in between? It's in between. You know, certainly things like neuroblastoma has various levels of findings we need in order to issue a full um, classification, but also the clinicians want to be able to have all that data up front, but also the we're finding that the families are very involved. And, the, you know, nowadays it's easier to get second and third opinions. And so they'll often take the first results, the pathology, the molecular, and kind of go to different institutions and try to get different opinions as to what therapy their child should receive. Um, And that is what they should be doing. But um, it's just a little bit easier now, I think, with virtual visits and um, kind of being able to share the samples all around. And there are large academic centers like DFCI or the Jimmy Fund Clinic in Boston, but also MD Anderson or the Cleveland Clinic, where they can, where the patients can get that information. And the interesting part about molecular is that it's not quite as standardized, I would say, as general pathologic samples. So in pathology, we'll look under a microscope and, you know, most pathologists will agree on the general diagnosis. Maybe we'll slightly disagree on a grade of a tumor. But in molecular, there isn't different labs and different institutions will have different um, panels that they're using, which may include different hotspots that you're looking for. And so 
there's been a lot of work in the AMP community or the pathologists that are focused on molecular um, testing as to standardize the panels so that, you know, each panel includes at least a core findings of, you know, hot mutations or, but I would say there's still a lot of work that needs to be done in that area. I was trying just to think in terms of just because it's pediatrics and an unfortunate situation. I mean, cancer is always an unfortunate situation. I mean, whether kids or adults, but obviously it always breaks our hearts to see any child yeah. with, with cancer. I, I could never really deal with it when I was in training. And, and that's where I was trying to think is, you know, how advanced is the precision uh, medicine or precision oncology in pediatric cancers. It seems like it's really uh, kind of front and from listening to you, I think it's front and center in the caring of pediatric cancers. Yes, I would say it's, it's definitely going that way. And if you think a lot of the malignancies like osteosarcoma or Ewing sarcoma, a lot of these um, have outcomes that really need to be improved. And, you know, molecular may be the way that we understand more about these tumors and will allow um, us to develop more targeted therapies. Is there anything that, from a sequencing technique, I guess, is there any reason to think that the technique of sequencing a pediatric tumor should be different than sequencing an adult tumor? The technique, I would say, isn't necessarily different. You're using the same techniques, but obviously the areas that you're looking for will be different. And that's, I think that's another reason why a lot of pediatric departments are forming their own molecular labs, just because they're finding that the panels that the adult labs use may not be covering the areas that the pediatric world requires. So for example, in the myeloid kind of world, GATA2 mutations are very prominent. And these are one of these um, germline predisposition syndromes, but a lot of adult panels do not cover that area well. So if a patient presents, for example, with AML, a young patient or MDS, and their sample is sent to one of the adult laboratories, that panel may come back negative, whereas in fact, that patient actually may have a GATA2 mutation. And this has big implications for donor selection, right, and for therapy. And so that's why there is now has been rise in pediatric molecular laboratories. And we've actually, this has happened in Boston Children's Hospital, where we've had cases where the panels came back negative, whereas in fact, there was in fact a GATA2 mutation. And this had implication for transplant from siblings. We were able to figure this out in time, but it was very close. That obviously has big implications for clinical outcome. I mean, ultimately, we want to make sure that whatever we are doing has a positive impact on the outcomes right. and on driving therapy. Olga, this was very helpful trying to understand that sweet spot of precision oncology in pediatric cancers. Anything I needed to ask you, I may have forgotten to ask you that might help our listeners better understand that particular area. Anything you want to leave us with that I may have forgotten or overlooked? No, I think this was great to just highlight that, you know, pediatric malignancies, which, you know, are always very sad to think about um, and, of course, are very important, do require different, not only therapies, but also diagnostic um, testing. And, you know, just to highlight that, that that is a different field that should be recognized as such. Well, look, I appreciate your time. Uh, I know how busy things are. Congratulations on the new post at UT Southwestern and uh, looking forward to working with you and collaborating with you. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. This was great.
Thank you very much for listening to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. I hope you had a good time learning from Dr. Olga Weinberg on pediatrics and precision oncology. I'd like to get your feedback. I'd like to know from you the good, bad, and ugly about the Keras Molecular Minute. We'd like to incorporate your feedback into making any changes that you view necessary. You could send me an email to cnabhan at kerisls.com. That's C-N-A-B-H-A-N at kerisls.com. Let me know your thoughts. And as always, subscribe to the Keras Molecular Minute. Rate us, give us the number of stars you believe we deserve, and write a brief review. That would be always welcome, and I would be very thankful to that. Thank you for listening. Until next time, take care of yourselves.